And it's so strong, as a matter of fact, when he says the synagogue of Satan, remember a synagogue was what we called the place where the Jews would come together for their uh, meetings on Saturdays, on the Sabbath. But the word that he uses is so strong, the synagogue of Satan, that some scholars have come to say that God would never say that of Israel, who he had one time called his covenant people, his bride even. Some scholars have said that he could never say that about them because of the faithfulness that he told them of in the Old Testament. But I think that it's clear that it's saying that because of how the letter is put together. It's obviously put together to contradict everything the Jews were saying to them. And there's really no other context to interpret what a synagogue is. A synagogue is a place where Jews meet. The word was not used in Greek for anything else. And so this is talking, I firmly believe, about Jewish people. People who were of, of, the, uh, of the bloodline of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yet he says, they say they are Jews and are not but lie. He's not referring to their ethnicity here. He's referring to their membership in the covenant people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the word Jew really referred, could be used in two different ways. It could be used in referring to someone who was a descendant of Abraham. On the other hand, it could be used to refer to someone who was a member of the covenant people of God. And that was where Israel got confused because they thought to be a descendant of Abraham was to be a part of the covenant people of God. And that's, not what he's, that's what he's saying is not true here. As a matter of fact, if we look in Romans 2.28, uh, he really clarifies on that. He says, a Jew is not... Or, I'm going to look this up because I forgot to write it down. I'm going to quote it to you wrong if I don't. Romans 2.28 says, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So these people were what I call Israelites, Israelis. They were descended from Abraham. They had received circumcision as babies. They met every Saturday, and they probably thought that they kept the law very, very well. But their hearts had not been changed. They did not believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so God says, though they say they are Jews, they are not, but lie. This would have been the biggest insult. The, the biggest insult to a Jew that you could give is calling them a Gentile. And that's exactly what he's calling them. He's saying, though they, were, though they were born from Abraham's seed, they are as bad as Gentiles. And they are not a part of my covenant people. And his condemnation of them just gets stronger from there. He says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. This word bow down before your feet really denotes essentially kissing the feet of, that you're bow the, feet of the person that you're bowing down before. It was something that a conquered king would have to do to his conqueror. As the conquering king came into the city, he would make the king that he had overtaken bow down before him and kiss his feet in a sign of utter humiliation and despair. And that's what he's saying was going to happen to the Jews. I don't think that this was probably going to happen literally in the context of Philadelphia. I don't think that the, the Jews would end up kissing the feet of the Christians. I think what he's communicating here is, I will show them, make abundantly clear to them that you are my chosen people. That you, though you are Gentiles by the flesh, in the spirit, you are Jews. You are members of the covenant people. And I will make them realize that and be ashamed for the fact that they opposed you. And he clarifies on that. He says, they will learn, because of what I've done, they will learn that I have loved you. 
This was what the Jews would oftentimes consider the central part of God's covenant with them, was to love them. To say that God loved the Jews was to sum up the covenant of God with the Jews in one word, love. That is what he had given them. And what God is saying here is, no, they do not have my covenant love. I have given that to you, and I am going to make that abundantly clear to them. And so the people in the church of Philadelphia could continue enduring the horrible circumstances that they were doing, continue remaining faithful to Christ, because he would have vindication. He would show their enemies that he loved them, and he would shame them forever standing against the church in Philadelphia. That's such an encouragement. I know that sometimes as Christians we talk so much about love that when we feel a desire for justice against our enemies, we can feel guilty for that. I think that that's not right. There are two kinds of justice that we can really seek. One is a feeling of injustice towards ourselves. You know, that guy cut me off. I really hope he gets pulled over for that. That's, a, that's an injustice. That's because we're motivated by our, our love for ourselves. Because I love myself so much and he's insulted me, then I really feel that he needs judgment for that. That's an improper motivation. And from that motivation, we oftentimes see the desire to take judgment out, on our, uh, judgment out ourselves, to exercise that judgment. That's what we call road rage. Uh, that's when he needs to be judged and I'm the one to do it. And so that's when we begin to do that. Those are improper and unholy ways to exercise judgment. Proper judgment, proper righteousness and justice is motivated from and exercised by God. So when the, we read about Christians being killed by the thousands in Sudan, the reason that we are abhorring that is not because Christians are like me. How could you kill thousands of people like me? I hate it when people kill people like me. That's not the motivation. It's God loves those people. He is sanctified. His son died an excruciating death on the cross for those people. And he cares for them so deeply that when we see them being mistreated, we cannot help but cry out, God, take justice. And it's not something where I'm motivated to take justice because my justice is nowhere near as good as God's. The Jew, or the, I'm sorry, the church in Philadelphia could not have shown vindication against the Jews like God was going to show. If they had exercised uh, th- their vindication themselves, it would have been partial. They would have dulled the blade of vindication and it wouldn't have been as real. Just like when I try to take vengeance on someone who's wronged me, it's not as good as the vengeance God's going to get. And so God says, you can endure these things, loving your enemies and not harming them in any way while they persecute you intensely because you know that I will judge them, that justice will be had, that the people who are causing your children to die will be punished for it and justice will be exercised for it. You don't have to take it out yourself. You can continue doing what you're doing because I will have my vindication against your enemies. And to a persecuted people, that is a great encouragement because while we love our enemies, We hate what they're doing. And I think accurately, according to what the gospel tells us, we hate them for what they're doing. But we love them according to the gospel. 
We want to see their repentance. And that's what he's telling them here. You can continue loving your enemies that way. That intense way that I love my enemies was I died on the cross. You can continue doing because I will exercise justice. And you can't exercise justice the way I can. The next reason that Christ gives the church in Philadelphia to continue persevering is because God would keep them as they had kept his word. Excuse me. In verse 10 we read, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. Christ tells them, I'm going to keep you. And that's such an encouragement. The, when he says, because you have uh, kept my word about patient endurance, most likely this is referring to the word or the message that was communicated by Christ's life on earth. He's saying, in the same way that I endured bad treatment and suffering and persecution at the hands of those I was trying to save, so you have done. I can't imagine Christ saying that of me. To say that I loved my enemies the same way that he loved his enemies, that's intense. I can't imagine suffering the way that he did and continuing to and really suffering for the purpose of saving the people who were causing him to suffer. But he says that you have endured the same way that I endured. And because of that, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you. John, in all over the book of John, we read that we are in the hand of God and no one can take us out. He says, because you have endured, I will keep you in my hand. You will never fall out of it. You are secure in me. You might lose your money, though death will take you, sickness will take you, people will torture you, your family will die. I have you in my hand. And while all those things happen, I can tell you I am working for your good. And you will receive a reward for what you're doing. I will keep you in my hand. That is so intensely encouraging that he says this. And that's just one of, the new, one of the many attributes of God that we're learning here is his faithfulness and his sovereignty combine for an overwhelming encouragement to his saints. He keeps us in his hand. The next reason that God gives the church, or that Christ really gives the church in Philadelphia to persevere is that he will reward, I'm sorry, is that he is coming soon. This is the shortest of the encouragements in the verse. It's actually only two words in the Greek, and yet it's really my favorite. Um, because it's so different. He says, I am coming soon in the beginning of verse 11. Now he says this in several other of the epistles, but there, once again, it's not an encouraging thing. It's kind of like, I know your works. In the other epistles, he says, I am coming soon. And I believe to the church in Ephesus, he says, I will remove your lampstand. I will take away the churches that are in Ephesus. I will take you out. And that's the kind of coming soon that he was saying. Last week, we heard about the church where he said, I am coming like a thief in the night. You don't know when I'm coming. And when I do, I will judge you. That's a scary kind of coming. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying of all the persecution and troubles that you have endured, they're almost over. I'm coming soon. I'll be there soon to relieve you. This is just overwhelmingly encouraging. And I think that this is the heart of what Adoniram Judson believed. He believed that Christ was coming soon. When his children died, he says, it doesn't matter. They didn't have long to live anyway. 
Because Christ is coming back. And that's all that matters. That's all that we have to worry about in this life is that Christ is coming back soon. And when He does, we will give an answer for what we're doing. And that's how they can continue to endure. They knew that the race was almost over. They were almost there. When a, when a runner runs a race and he ra- rounds that last bend, especially in a marathon, when you get to see that finish line and it's there before you, it doesn't matter if you've been running for two hours or how, however many miles, 23 miles in a marathon race and your body is just falling apart. All of a sudden, they straighten up a little bit, a little bit taller, lean forward a little bit, and they start sprinting oftentimes when there's no energy left. And that's what he's telling them they can do here. The race is almost over. You can pull back all the stops and give whatever you were holding back. You can continue to persevere because the finish line is in sight. And it's coming soon. The next reason that Christ gives to the church in Philadelphia. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's, let's go back to that point. I do have one clarification. Some of you may be thinking this letter was written around 8090. He said, I'm coming soon. These people are all dead now, as well as all of their grandparents. And it's now close to 2,000 years later. What does he mean by he's coming soon? How can that possibly be true? Uh, should we throw out the book of Revelation because God said he was coming soon in it? And I don't think that that's what we need to be doing. Um, Peter addressed this very same question. As a matter of fact, uh, by the late 50s, early 60s, AD, AD 50, 60, um, that question was already being asked. God, uh, Christ had only been gone for about 20 years and already people were saying, where is he, you know? I mean, he said he was coming soon, said it would be quickly. Where is he? Is this, I mean, if he, does, if he said he's coming soon and he doesn't come soon, then how can we believe the rest of the word of God? If he broke one promise, he'll break another one. And so people were saying that when, when Second Peter was written. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he tells the church, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. I believe that this is a twofold truth. And Christ says he is coming soon. He's, he's saying that according to his standards. He will come in his time. And it will be perfect and right when he does come. The time will be right. And the other half of what he's saying when he says, I'm coming soon, is this is what you need to hear. This is the way you need to live as though today were your last day before I came back. That's what the church needed to hear, and so that's what they told him, and it was true. And it's just as true today, and we can have just as much faith in it, and we can live just as strongly because of it today. Now we can move on to the next point. Uh, The next reason that God gives the church in Philadelphia to persevere is that he will reward those who follow him. He says in the second half of verse 11, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He talks of a crown. A crown would have been something completely foreign to these people. I mean, they knew what it was uh, to give a culturally relevant definition of it. It's something you've seen on TV, uh, but you've never really seen one yourself and you never hope to have one. I mean, a crown was a thing of victory. Here, these people were being put to death constantly. They were not the gladiators in the stadium who had received crowns at the end. They were the bait. And so a crown was not something that they could ever expect to receive in this life. But he tells them, for all that you have done, you will receive a crown. 
the Bible talks about rewards in an interesting way because when I think of rewards on this earth, I know that if I receive a third-place trophy for something this big and my friend receives a third-place trophy for something this big, I'm going to be very tempted to be thinking, gosh, I wish I had that trophy. I wish I did better. I wish I had more glory for myself in that trophy like he has. This thing's really small and insignificant. I don't have that. Gosh, that stinks. But that's not the way the Bible talks about rewards. When the Bible talks about rewards, it's in such a way that you will be intensely satisfied with what you have received. And what you have received will be very just. And yet, those who have done more for the kingdom of God in their lifetime will receive greater rewards. This is the motivation for Christians to persevere more than others. This is the motivation for you to not just say, okay, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, we're good. You know, I can keep living my life the way I am now. God's going to forgive me, all that stuff. Uh, If you're thinking that, you may really need to think whether or not you believe the gospel. But you certainly need to be thinking about the reward that you will not be receiving in the kingdom of heaven. Because God says he will reward us for every good deed, for every cold cup of water we give to a stranger, as he says in the gospels. You will be rewarded. You will be paid back. And Paul evaluates this in relationship to his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. Uh, he's been through quite a bit. Uh, you can read all through the, the books of First and Second Corinthians and Acts, all of the horrible things that had happened to him, how many times he had been beat within an inch of his life. Some believe he actually died one time when he had been beaten. Uh, his friends left him for dead outside the city, and then a couple of days later he just stood up and went back in. Um, so he had been through quite a bit. And he writes about his afflictions and about the things, that, the torture that really that he'd been put through. He says, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, my torture compared to the reward that is waiting for me in heaven, there's no comparison. Not worth trying because the reward in heaven is so much greater. And that is what Christ is promising to the church in Philadelphia here. He says, I will reward you for your works. You will receive compensation for your suffering and it will be overwhelmingly worth all that you have gone through. And that's why they could continue to persevere because they knew it was not for nothing. They knew they were not just running and chasing nothing. They were running a race in which they could expect to receive a crown. And that was why they ran. And that's why they could continue to run. The next and and, uh, final reason that Christ gives the church in Philadelphia to persevere um, is that soon they would no longer have to. Uh, He writes in verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. I'm sorry, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He's talking about heaven here. And I want you to pay attention to this. Do not miss what he's saying. Because this is the most intense, this is really the climax of the whole letter. It's a little bit difficult for us to think about. And if you read over it quickly, you might miss. You're saying, okay, he's going to make me a pillar and a temple. He's going to write some stuff on me. You got graffiti. That's great. What's the point? Why do I want to be a pillar for uh, for eternity? Why is that a good thing? Um, Remember where where the Philadelphians lived. They lived in huts. 
in tents. Their houses had fallen down on top of their heads more times than they could count. And so now they lived in shambles outside the city. And God speaks into that constantly changing world where you couldn't count on meals from one day to the next. I will make you firm. I will make you a pillar in a temple. The pillars in the, in the Roman temples, if you ever get to see like the Parthenon or anything like that, I haven't seen them myself, but the pictures are intense. I mean, these pillars are huge marble things that they made stand up so high. I have no idea how they were able to do that without cranes and everything else that we have today. And that's what he tells them he's going to make them. No longer frail, no longer fragile, no longer struggling to eke out an existence from day to day, but solid and firm. And not just solid and firm, but look at where they are. They are in the temple of my God in the presence of God himself eternally pillars don't come and go out of the temple they're there forever and that's what he's telling them is going to happen to them there's three types of presences of God or really I think four actually there's a presence in his omnipotence that is that God is everywhere he's sustaining all things according to the Bible and he exists everywhere I called that omnipotence, I think. That's omnipresence, I'm sorry. But he is everywhere. He is in heaven, he is on earth, he is in hell. This is not necessarily an encouraging presence. It's not a discouraging presence either. It's simply that God is everywhere. It's certainly not encouraging to the people who are in hell. And there's another type of God's presence that's even worse than his omnipresence. It's his presence to judge. That's the kind of presence that he has in hell. That's the kind of presence that he was going to bring against some of the churches when he was coming to judge them. That's the presence that we see all throughout the Old Testament as he judges the nations of the Philistines and of Canaan. He was present to judge against them. Then we see God's presence to bless. We see that also throughout all the Old Testament as he was present with, the, with Israel uh, in, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. He was present to bless He was blessing Israel and they became very fruitful and they became a very powerful nation because of his blessing. You can also see that throughout the uh, throughout the New Testament at times. I believe that when you see any kind of an appearance of Christ uh, or in the Old Testament appearance of Christ, he is there to bless. However, there is one more type of presence of God, and I would have to categorize it as a presence of intense blessing. It's not just. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you. It's I'm going to reveal myself fully to you. The Bible tells us that no man has ever seen God. And when they're talking about that, they're talking about in the fullest sense. No one has been able to see him because to see him and to behold his glory as he is would simply consume us. We are not that holy. We can't even conceive of it. We are not able to enter into that presence because we are not holy. And yet God says to them, you will be in my full presence. The presence that no one has ever entered into before, I will bring you into. And just as you could persevere because you know God, you can persevere because one day you will fully know God. There will be no more struggles daily of getting into your word, of loving your wife, of fighting back your fleshly desires and trying to encourage and and, and nurture the spirit in you. You will be eternally in my presence and you will know me fully. Then he says, never shall he go out of it. You never have to worry about falling out of that presence of God. He says, I will write on him the name of my God. The name of God was really the uh, 
the way to describe him. If you said you knew someone's name uh, in, a, in a Hebrew mindset, that would say that you know them well. You understand their character. The name, as you, as you may have noticed throughout the Old Testament, names are given that all have meanings. And so to know someone was to know something about them because you knew the meaning of their name. The name of God, however, was an interesting one because the Hebrew uh, consonants that make up the word are not pronounceable. They're, they're, they're all breath marks. And so you can't say that. How do you say it? I mean, that's not, that's not a word. And the reason is that no one could fully know the name of God. You couldn't fully know the character of God. But there he says, you will know it. And you will know me fully. So much so that I will write my name on you. Just like a kindergartner writes his name on his pencil box to make sure that no one else takes it to exercise his authority over it. God writes his name on us and says, this one is mine. He knows me fully. And he will never leave my temple. But that's not all he says. He says, and I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. The new Jerusalem is really a symbol for heaven. Uh, and the kingdom of, of David that we were talking about, the kingdom of heaven. And so we will have the name written on us as citizens of that kingdom. That's intense. Citizens of the kingdom of God means that we share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ himself. And he will write that. He will proclaim that in words on this pillar that will never leave his presence. And finally, I think ultimately the climax of the climax of the letter, we have, and I will write on him my new name. The Bible tells us that the name of Jesus Christ was his name and is his name right now. But there will be a time later when he will be given a new name, a new revelation of his character more fully than anyone, more fully than John the disciple who laid his head on his chest was able to see. And not only will we know that name and will we see that character and behold us, but it will be written on us. And we will never be able to forget it. We will never leave that presence and we will know God as no one has ever known God. This is the ultimate blessing that God can bestow on any human being. There's nothing better. There's absolutely nothing better in this world or the next than to know God fully. And that's what he promises to the church in Philadelphia. He promises to them and he says, you can keep on enduring this hell because one day you will see me You will know me. You will never again leave my presence. And all of the things that you have gone through will be nothing compared to that. The greatest things in life will fail in comparison and the worst things in life will seem as though they never even happened because now you will be in the presence of God beholding him as he is. And that's the encouragement he gives to this church. The letter, and I I believe that this is what Adoniram Judson believed. And because he believed this, his life changed. And that's what I'm praying that happens to me and to you throughout this next week and throughout the rest of our lives. The letter closes with he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the part where he clarifies, I'm not just writing to Philadelphia. I'm writing to you, Sovereign Grace Church of Bakersfield. This is for you to hear. This is a necessary message for you to hear. And it's... it's, not just Sovereign Grace Church of Bakersfield. It's not even just the church. It's he who has ears. Not even that. He who has an ear. If you've, got, if you've lost one, you still qualify. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. This is really for all of us. And 
So I think that there's really two categories of people in this room. The first and larger category is the one that I would fall into. That's those of us who are conserving. Those of us who are not quite persevering like we probably should be. Maybe some of us who aren't persevering at all. And to us, I think this letter says, why have you given up so easily? Don't you know what is waiting for you in heaven? Don't you know that God sees what you do? Don't you know that he rewards those who persevere for him? That he will have vindication against your enemies? And that one day you will be ushered into his complete and total presence? And if you know that, what are you doing? How can you not live differently from the rest of the world believing that? I don't think you really can. And so the recommendation that I would give give to uh, those of us who are in this category is know God and believe Him. That's really the point of this whole letter is the reason that the the Philadelphians could persevere is because they knew God and they would know Him even better. So if you're having trouble persevering, don't start by trying to get on some program of doing good works every day. Start by getting into the Word of God and prayer. And listen to Him and get to know His character. Get to know His Word intimately. You can never know too much, regardless of what some may tell you. Some may say, you know, okay, you're getting a little too scholarly there, a little bit too precise. You can be too scholarly. But too scholarly is when you've got all the information up here and none of it down here. You can never know too much about God here. And you can't know here without knowing here. So know God. Get into His Word. Read it. Study it. Read it backwards and forwards. Read it systematically and then straight through and know God. And that's what will cause you to persevere because if you know Him, you cannot help but persevere. Uh, Jesus kind of addressed this a, a long time ago. He was, he was teaching and He told His disciples about a treasure in a field. And he said, he mentioned this man who didn't have much. He was a laborer out in the field and he was digging and he happened upon this treasure that had been buried. And when he found it, he went and he sold his house and he sold his donkey and he sold the clothes off of his back. He sold every possession that he had ever had. He sold the family heirlooms. He sold everything. He had nothing left so that he could go buy this field. Because he knew that once he owned the field, he would own the treasure. And Jesus said, that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is a treasure that you are going to receive. Now go sell everything. Don't hold anything back. Nothing's worth holding back. The the proverbial phrase, you can't take it with you. And you wouldn't want to. Because you'll have so much better things in heaven. You will have the presence of God fully revealed before you. And for that, you can give up. You can easily give up knowing that everything you have. You can give your life up if you believe that. Because you believe that what you're going to get for it is immeasurably immeasurably better, as Paul puts it. You know, we don't face what what the Philadelphians faced. I have a job and I'm a Christian. I can feed my wife and we have an apartment and it's actually very nice. Um, I have a car that we could, two cars that we can drive. I'm overwhelmingly blessed. And yet I find myself not persevering the way that they persevered. No one in this state will ever try to kill me because I gave them the gospel. That's, I mean, 
I'm not saying that that will never happen, but in the current state, that's just, that's not happening. And I don't think any of you have faced death here because of what you have said. I don't think any of you have, or at least those of you who are in my category, have probably ever seen your children starving because you believe God. And yet we give up so easily. So little stops us. Know God, and then you will persevere. And then there's the other category, and I believe you are here. Those of you who have forsaken jobs for the sake of honesty, who have given up so much of your money, as I said before, that you are not able to live to the standard of our culture. And I believe you're here. God says, remember why you're persevering. Don't forget. If you forget, it will become empty and it will become very difficult and you will fall away from it eventually. But if you remember that I am God, that only I control entrance into the kingdom, that I will vindicate you against your enemies, that I will reward you, that I see what you do, and that one day you will stand before me in my full presence, you can continue doing what you do because of that. And it won't even be that difficult because you know who I am. And so for those of you who are doing that, don't step away from the reason you're doing it. Please, please, please anchor yourselves in the Word of God. You may be enduring well now, but if you are not anchored in the Word of God, you will not continue. And so remember why you are doing what you are doing and remember the crown that is coming for you. Remember God. Now we have the privilege of seeing God uh, in a sort of veiled way. We take communion and that is a picture of of who God is. And that's what we're going to do next. We're going to see. And so I'd like as you take communion, be thinking specifically and purposefully about who God is and what communion tells you about God and allow Him to change you because of that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You have seen fit to give us Your Word, that we are so unworthy to hear anything from You so unable to even hear anything of you in ourselves. You have given us the word and then you gave us the spirit to open up our ears, to open our eyes and show us you for who you are. I pray that you would let me see you this week in a way that I haven't seen you before. That you would let this church see you in a way that is so real that we can easily undergo the plundering of our property and any sort of insult for, the glo- for your glory so that we might endure and receive the prize. In your name, amen.